Second Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are, are, are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. And now our text. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. For the many weeks we could explore this letter to the church, and we pray now as we close this study and this series, Lord, that you would bless us with a continued vigilance, hope, expectation, and that all the praise would be to you. Give me wisdom, Lord, to speak the word faithfully. Lord, knowing that I am a mere mortal, I have nothing in myself to bring. Lord, we look to you, and we pray that you would give us eyes of faith ears to receive the truths from your word and to weigh them and to be found of you, pure and blameless in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, out of verses 17 and 18, I have uh, three points. They are these. A serious watch. Number two, a sure growth. Number three, a central focus. So, first of all, a serious watch, then a sure growth, and then a central focus. So, a serious watch. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Ye therefore, beloved. Last time we saw the, uh, the reminder, again, as Peter has been building the case of the sure return of Christ, and that it demands... A state of being prepared. Are you prepared? Are you preparing? You know, it's interesting to think about that because you can hear sermons. You don't actually digest them. It's easy, right? It's almost like putting something into your mouth and spitting it out again. But it needs to be digested. Well, the scoffers, they took these teachings and they twisted them to their own destruction. And we saw that last time and we saw how that related with the Apostle Paul's teachings as well. So notice that now Peter concludes... He says, ye therefore, therefore is the conclusion, not just to this immediate argument respecting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is really the conclusion to the entire letter, the entire epistle. And so he gives really as a concluding uh, exhortation, two commands, there's two imperatives in this set of verses, and they are these, beware and grow. Beware and grow. Those are the final exhortations. And so really, if you wanted to summarize this entire letter, those are the two things we want to remember. Beware of false teachers and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
First of all, in the text, the word ye, as it is in our version, ye is fronted and it is emphatic in the Greek. So he's really placing emphasis on you, beloved. You, church of God, as opposed to them, the false teachers. Are you a Christian this morning? He says, you then, if you are, if you claim the lordship of Christ in your life, listen up, act accordingly, do these things. And then for the fifth and final time in this letter, he calls them his beloved. The beloved body of Christ. He affectionately again draws his arms as an apostle around them and is warm towards them. And it's important to remember why Peter keeps doing this because this is a hard letter. There's a lot of serious things at stake. And it's interesting because when someone exhorts you or admonishes you, it can be really hard to hear sometimes, right? Do you like being admonished? It's usually hard, especially, you know, in your family, your kids and your wife see things that you don't really like hearing. And it's hard to hear. But once you know that they love you and care for you and are really interested in your well-being, you take it differently. And you have to remind yourself of that. And so in churches as well, when we admonish one another, take it with that sense and the reality that we are the beloved. We are one in body and it is for our spiritual well-being. And so don't put up your heels, but listen, receive. Remember we are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our pride can be very resistant and our feelings can be hurt. And those two can slam the brakes on admonitions. But at root, remember we are a community that has been purchased by Jesus Christ. He drew us together in this body to grow together unto the head. So receive, whether it's coming from the foot or the ear or the eye or the mouth, exhortations. And look what Peter says next. He says, Ye beloved, seeing ye know these things before. He had spoke earlier in the letter about reminders. I am reminding you of these things. And now reminders means they knew these things, but they needed to be stirred up, almost like a fire that was going out. But the coals were there. They were red hot. And so Peter is appealing to what the apostles had already said early on in their teachings, what they already knew. Now, you maybe have sat through this entire series of Second Peter, but even if it wasn't through this series, you have been, hopefully as a Christian, reading your Bible, and the regular reading of Scripture is knowledge that you know, and it is preparing us, it is stirring, it is reminding us. You have been warned of the dangers of entertaining, undermining teachings throughout this letter, and of the subtle sins that come in and slide under the rug, as it were, and, and start to fester. You cannot plead ignorance this morning. So I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that dangerous. You have been warned. I have been warned. How many churches that were once filled with members that were on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ are now empty shells that are rotting because the gospel has been taken away. Do not plead ignorance. Be vigilant. Take these stirrings to heart, please. And he says, therefore, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall. Fall from your own steadfastness. Now, before we get to this falling business, I want to highlight this word wicked because it's interesting. Peter used various terms to describe the scoffers, the false teachers, all kinds of things. Now, he could have pulled from the dictionary of terms for them, but he uses this fairly rare word. It's athesmos in the Greek, 
And it is only used three times in the Bible. Actually, I'm wrong. It is only used in one other place in the Bible. And it's in this letter. And so then our light bulb should perk for a second. So why is Peter using this very particular word and reminding us in his final conclusion about the wicked in this way? Well, where else do you think that word got used? With what group would you associate such wickedness? Well, it's interesting. Turn back to 2 Peter 2, verse 6 and 7. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. There's that same word. The same word. Now he directly links the warning to the church with what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The portrait of rebellion in human history of exchanging the glory of God for things of man and indulging the flesh is Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment on it. And he links false teachers with that same word. Really interesting. Now the word wicked here means those who break through the restraints of the law to gratify their own lusts. So they want nothing to do with boundaries. And Peter says, watch out. Because as soon as boundaries get erased, and as soon as teachers bring in conniving teachings that allow you to live lawlessly, within lawlessness, Watch out. You see, the goal of twisting scripture isn't just, oh, that's a novel, neat teaching. It's because people want to free themselves from God, from his demands, from his law, from his righteousness, and from judgment. And so, you know what that's called when you get unrestrained freedoms to be free, to do whatever you like? It's called, in English, licentiousness. We don't use that word too often anymore, do we? But licentiousness is a shameless disregard for trans, for, of laws. It is transgressing moral boundaries. Licentiousness. And Peter says, watch out, because that's the kind of things you get. And when the church falls asleep, unbridled licentiousness naturally follows. Instead of then commending to the world the holiness of God, the church, when it compromises actually commends something else. It compromises the gospel. And we see this. The toxification of the witness of the gospel happens when the church compromises its theology. Now, it's interesting because the founders of, the Amer of America were very aware of the link between belief, i.e., what teachers are teaching, and lifestyle between law and liberty. Now, you maybe have heard this portion of the American Declaration of Independence, and listen carefully for liberty. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Now, the framers of the American Constitution knew exactly with liberty there had to be something. Something undergirds liberty. And it ties back into this whole idea of licentiousness because liberty for the American founders was liberty to do something. Liberty for, not liberty from. It is the freedom, true liberty, is the freedom to pursue the good within the bounds of law, divine and natural law, God's law. And they knew that. They knew the only way to have liberty was to be within those bounds. And they knew that everything then for a society to do well requires virtues, and virtues requires laws, God's laws. It recognizes it recognizes that you are accountable. Because everything begins with God. So when, when the church compromises on God's law, and when the church that is to be the beacon of virtues starts to erode that, society plummets with it. The gospel witness plummets with it. In fact, that is what has happened. We have seen the cultural lighthouse that the church ought to be has been very dim. It has been flickering. And freedoms are now freedoms to do whatever you want. There's unbridled licentiousness in this culture, isn't there? They are throwing off the boundaries. And we see this with the entire transgender norms and, and, and homosexuality. We have licentiousness gone rampant because the church did not hold on to and preach virtues based on God's law. It's amazing how these things tie together. So you see, the reason I, I kind of went on this little bunny trail is that little word, the wicked, inside of that is hatched the nest of erroneous, it, sorry, it is hatched inside of the nest of erroneous beliefs. What you believe hatches something. It hatches it in your family, and it hatches it then in culture, and it opens up floodgates like Sodom and Gomorrah if we throw off the law of God. And therefore, Peter simply says, Beware. He says this to the church, beware, watch out. That word beware is kind of interesting because it means to guard. It means to keep watch. It's what precisely what guards do on towers. They are looking. Guards are not hired for fun. They're not just up there because it's kind of neat to watch things, to stay up late at night. No, they protect things that are valuable. Now, think about that. After many, many months of going through this series... Has that sunk in? Have you seen what's valuable needs to be protected? And if I were to ask you, what's valuable that you have, that this church has, that needs to be protected, what would you say? It's funny, you might give the obvious answers. Well, of course, theological truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that kind of stuff. But do you believe it? You know, it's one thing to, to have jewelry and to say, oh, it's valuable, but if you, if you just let it, you know, uh, scatter around the house, you lose it. And so your life demonstrates the value you actually place on something as it sunk in. And so he says, watch out that you don't fall. Now notice the word being led away with the error of the wicked. It's interesting, especially considering last sermon. If you were with us last time, do you remember what Peter called the Apostle Paul? Beloved. Which is kind of interesting because we looked in Galatians at the point at which Paul 
rebuked Peter for Jewish elitism. Remember, he publicly confronted him, and yet Peter called him beloved. That's interesting because this is not lost on Peter. He's actually tying something in here because here's where we get our two other places word. This word being led away with the error of the wicked. This is amazing. This is Peter again. Remember, Peter got rebuked and he borrows this same word that's used in Galatians. The only other place where it's used in this way in precisely the dangers In Galatians 2.13, guess who else is led away with Peter's sin? If you had to make a guess, who would it be? It says, and the other Jews disassembled likewise with Peter insomuch that Barnabas also was, here's the word, carried away with their dissimulation. The irony is that Peter there was the ringleader in the very errors that he is now warning us against. Even Peter drew in Barnabas, Paul's close companion, in. You see, error is a powerful current that can sweep away the pillars of a house. Don't think you're stronger than Peter or Barnabas. Are you kidding me? Is that what we think? We are better than they are. Even in our society, even today, we have seen prominent church leaders and teachers and pastors fall and capitulate to errors, haven't we? Critical theory. You can think of some names there. Homosexual unions. We have had pastors that once were bastions of truth, compromise. We have seen open theism sweeping in and undermining the sovereignty of God and his knowledge. We have seen the new apostolic reformation bring in new teachings, new prophecies, new errors, just to name a few. You see, the enemy of our soul has honed his craft and he is after you and me. He's after us. And he employs many tactics. And if he does not get you here, He will try to lead you away here, somewhere else. Now, perhaps perhaps you haven't fallen to theological compromise directly. If somebody says, well, do you believe in the Trinity or in Corridor? Oh, yeah, of course I believe that. And you think you're, you're, you're on solid footing because you grew up with these teachings and you hold to them. So instead of direct attack, the enemy of your souls maybe brings in a new friend into your life. And you get close. Now, this friend has other beliefs. And because this friend has other beliefs, they start to challenge you. And the relationship trumps the thinking. Dating is one of those places where you have to be on your guard. Who you go into that kind of a relationship will impact you so tremendously much. Beware lest you are led away with the error of the wicked. It might be at work. You know, maybe at work you were unclear about your convictions with your co-workers because you didn't want to stand out. And so what happens is your moral line keeps shifting and slowly you move into a level of licentiousness. The devil is good at honing the craft in loneliness. If you're alone, spending much time by yourself, and maybe you're even around a lot of people, but you're still lonely and it becomes the seedbed to sinful patterns. Perhaps you're lonely this morning and you're sitting here and you haven't told anybody. 
and you start to justify self-pity, and it becomes self-destruction. What happens is you don't want to surround yourself with believers. You don't want to give. You refuse exhortation because you start to pity yourself, and instead of serving Christ by serving others, you want others to serve you first. And slowly it undermines core teachings. Because who's in the middle? Not Christ and his commands. You are. Oh, it comes quickly, being led away. The Apostle Paul said this, he says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he stand, standeth take heed, lest he fall. The Puritan John Trapp said it this way, he says, Fear a snake under every flower, a snare under every new truth. Try, therefore, before you trust. Look before ye leap. Therefore, walk circumspectly. You know that word? It's an old word. Circum. You get circumference. Looking around. Spectacles. Look around carefully. Tread gingerly. Step warily. Lift not up one foot till ye have found a sure footing. Are you that serious with your faith? Or do you just run in? Headstrong into things. You know, Peter realizes the stakes when he says, Lest ye fall from your own steadfastness. I remember not too long ago talking with somebody who was once passionate for evangelism. He was involved in apologetics ministries, faithful in going to church, but now he's completely disillusioned and rarely goes to church. Perhaps you know such people. Perhaps such people are very close to you. Will that be you one day? Yeah, we think, oh, not me, not me. Peter said that. Not I. Remember? You know, this falling is no mere stumble down the stairs kind of thing. Given the context of Second Peter and what has just been said before, this falling is falling to destruction. Oh, do not marginalize the terrors of hell. Do not soften the horrors of eternal suffering. The stakes are enormous. Now, sitting through Second Peter and hearing this, where all these commands come to the believer, you might be thinking, okay, well, is salvation then up to my effort? Is it up to me to hold myself in? Is, can Christians lose their salvation? That is a legitimate question to ask. And the answer to those questions is no, but a very guarded and nuanced no. Because the Apostle Paul nuances the same question with this when he exhorts the church with very similar words, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Obey. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the Apostle Paul holds it in tension. God the sovereign works through the means of obedience. He works through the means of watchfulness. 
being guarded. It is one of those means. So the answer to the question of how does this work is, well, watchfulness is one of those ways by which you maintain your secure position because you heed the warnings. If you walk out this morning and you walk in out Sunday after Sunday with your hands in your pockets and just living carelessly, you will fall. You cannot ignore these warnings. Thomas Schreiner, one of the commentators, says this. He says, experienced mountain climbers ensure their safety by studying their climb, taking necessary precautions, and knowing their climbing partners. Paying attention, beware, does not quench confidence, but is the means to it. Who would want to go mountain climbing with somebody that does not know what they're doing? The stakes of that kind of mountain climbing are serious. And so beware. And so intentionally keep the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ before you. Surround yourself with a community that loves Jesus. Satan wants you to despair. Christ would have you look to him. Sins discourage us and make us feel lost, lonely, and destroyed. Christ's spotless provision is sure and is conclusive. It is our salvation. The grace of God that holds the believer is an impregnable fortress. All things must work together, the Heidelberg Catechism says, for the salvation of God's elect. All things and work they will, not through doing nothing, but actually taking this seriously. And that's the first point, taking this seriously. Secondly, sure growth, a sure growth. And so the other command, but grow. Instead of straying into error, continually grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because Peter opened up this letter with this same idea. He says, grace and peace that it might be multiplied to the church in the knowledge of God and our Jesus Christ our Lord. And now he concludes with that. The final bookend, as it were, on this entire letter is the knowledge of Jesus Christ So labor, growth is laboring. Growth is doing everything you can to nurture in your heart and in this church, growing up. Labor to make daily progress. It's not about the speed of your growth that's in question here. It's the direction of your growth. Where are you growing to? To whom are you growing? Well, how would you answer that? If you were honest with yourself and you just later on at home ask yourself that question. To whom am I growing? It's a serious question. If you are moving in the right direction, good. But don't simply try to hold your ground to just put things in cruise control. Christianity is not a mindset of, well, I'm in the castle. That is unhelpfully bolstered by the term eternal security. I don't like that term. It's not how the Bible talks. We must use the much more helpful term The perseverance of the saints. A life that perseveres in growing. A life that is anchored and intentionally seeking more of God. That's what that term refers to. 
And so Peter stresses here the two primary jewels of growth, grace and knowledge. And he says, grow in grace. This means the God-given blessings that crown the people of God. These are gifts. These are things peculiar to the church. These are the blessings he has bestowed upon them. And those things are meant to grow. And I think a lot of times we, we don't think that way. Do you believe that graces can grow? Sometimes you think, well, that's what I've been gifted with and that's all it is. No, the Bible says let them grow, let them flourish. You see, if you don't believe this, there you have the first grace that must grow and that grace is the grace of faith. Faith must grow. And faith to grow means clasping onto these words and believing them. Because it either shrivels or it grows up. It increases with the trials of life as it forces its winds upon them and grows deeper roots or it capitulates. Hope. Hope abounds or it shrivels depending on where you look. Either you're looking to temporal things, things that will not last, or you're looking to eternal things. Well, if you look to temporal things, do you think hope will increase? No, it will start to dwindle. Love for God. Love for God can flourish as you meditate on Christ and surround yourself with the people of Christ, or it will dwindle. There's many people who stay home Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. They will not thrive. You don't grow that way. Has patience grown as you interact with family members? Has humility been cultivated by regular reminders of how utterly small we are and how sinful we are by ourselves. You see, the meditation of Christ forces us to realize how small we are. Now, perhaps you want to have stunted growth. You ever, you ever been in a forest or something and see one of those trees that has like a big ball growing on it or it's like grown crooked or something, something weird well, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be growing in a stunted way. Perhaps there's areas that are stunted in your growth. Areas where you've left off the holy war of sanctification because it hurts. Perhaps you neglect ministry within the church because you see it as at odds with your ministry in your family. You put the two against each other. You're more intentional at home than you are intentional at church. You see, the Bible doesn't put these two in oppositions. Both must grow up together. We cannot be a church that is a family of families that is so cultivated on the nuclear family that we neglect the spiritual family. The nuclear family must be cultivated by the spiritual family as it's cultivating them. It comes together. Looking back today, in the last year, have you grown in the one anothering that the Bible calls us to? Love one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. Have you grown in that? Is the grace of gratitude sprouting new shoots in your life? Perhaps there's areas where when something happens, and I know this for myself, something happens and you mope and you complain and you get annoyed. Well, take inventory and say, hey, am I growing there? Lord, Wean me from these sins. Perhaps when you think about this, you think, well, why have I been standing still in my faith? Why has this been? Perhaps you blame your discipline. 
You keep dropping the ball where you ought to know, you know you ought to be better. You ought to be more in the Bible. You ought to be more in prayer and fellowship and so, so long. And you, you start to blame yourself and look inwardly. And how many begin the Christian life in zeal, expecting that the winds of change will just blow them swiftly and beautifully in the right direction? Is that how you look at the Christian life? Just one beautiful ride. And it's very disappointing and you're discouraged because the battle raged deeper and harsher and the winds were against you way more than you expected. Did you count the cost? Have you considered that there will be in the Christian life of growth tremendous seasons of disappointment? And that disappointment will be the disappointment with yourself, with other sinners, and with this broken world. And you may be disappointed with God, but it's not on account of His holiness. It is on account of your weakness. And that is wrong of yourself. Have you realized that to grow in the grace of trust means you will be confronted with temptations to quit, to throw it in the towel, to give it all up, Because it is precisely in the darkest hours when you want to throw in the towel that God is there and calling you to look to him. Not only when things are easy, but especially when things are tough. In seasons of regret, are you living with regret? Some of you are. Look to him. When you're discouraged, look to him. Grow in those seasons. Perhaps you're comparing yourself right now this week to an unbelieving neighbor. They've got it all made. Their life is just smooth sailing. And you're tempted to compare yourselves to them. And you're jealous. Maybe you're jealous of somebody in church. You're like, well, they got it all together. No, no, no. You know, Jonathan Edwards said, Prepare for such temptations now. For come they will. He says, prepare now to confront the doubt-seeding emotions that lure your eyes inwards instead of upwards. Oh, prepare, Christians, in this time of growth. Are you preparing yourself to be hated? You will be hated. And it could be long seasons of rejection, ridicule, and disappointment. And Jonathan Edwards then says, but in the light of the glory of heaven, those seasons will vanish into nothing. The first minutes that heaven's glories open up before our eyes. And so today it might seem like a lot, but in heaven's glory it is not. And so in this point of growing in grace, remember this. It's grace. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. By nature, everything we ought to grow in is a gift from Almighty God, and it is never really mine to cause the growth. The increase comes from God himself. And that is why Peter anchors this final command of grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because grace is like a flower that withers if it is not attached to the stem that brings its nourishment. And in the same way, grace will die without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If grace is the attainment, knowledge is the means. They must keep an equal pace. You don't want a large stem with a small flower. You don't want a 
large flower that is hardly nurtured. You need them together. So press on in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to him when you're discouraged. Know him as you meditate on scripture. Christ saturates every page of this book. Don't read it like you're reading a manual. Read it like you're reading the letter of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. He walks on every page of this book. Know his patience in your weaknesses. Know his heart because he gave himself for you, believer. Know his care because of the multitude of providences that are in your life are carefully honed for you. Know his provision in sending his spirit. You see, nothing is more valuable than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says of Jesus, he is chief among a thousand, ten thousand. Which is why Jonathan Edwards writes this. He says, Christ is exceedingly ready to pity us. His arms are open to receive us. He delights to be received, to receive distressed souls that come to him and to protect them. It is a work that he exceedingly rejoices in because he delights in acts of love and pity and mercy. Oh, dear people, the love and the knowledge of Christ is to be preferred above everything you pursue. United to Jesus Christ, you are united to the Son. And when you are united to the Son, all of the love of the Father for the Son spills over its banks onto us. So the chief meditation of the Christian is the love of the Father for the Son to whom we are united. That is the most beautiful meditation for the soul. Which leads me to the final point. The last phrase. A central focus. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice what Peter ends with. To him be glory. Other letters will end with, you know, greet such and so and greet such and so who have done this and that. You get greetings and commendations. But Peter ends by shining the entire spotlight on God. But it's interesting, this is a doxology peculiarly to the Son of God, right? To whom, to Him be the glory, and that's Jesus we see in the previous phrase. There's only two other places where there are doxologies to Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 4, Revelation 1. You see, why would Peter do this? It's because the scoffers made so little of Him, they mocked Him, they said, where is the promises of His coming? He's a promise breaker. And Peter says, oh, no, no, no. To him be the glory forever and ever. He describes all glory to him. And it's interesting because in doing it this way, Peter takes the glory that is due to God alone and by ascribing it to Christ, he is clear. The Lord Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so he says to him, be glory. Who can compare To what Jesus has done for his sheep. Will there ever arise in the courts of heaven. Anyone that will receive more majesty than Christ Jesus. Will there ever be anyone that walks in those courts. Who is greater than Jesus. Who comes close to such majesty. By which even the angels cover themselves. And they bow down. And when John starts to worship the angel. He says see thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God. 
Jesus Christ is the fountain of virtues. He is the spring of all righteousness. He is the very essence of holiness, justice, and love. Jesus Christ, it says, made all things by the word of his power and holds them up. Jesus Christ alone is the arm that is holding the church that brings salvation. Jesus Christ is the one whose words will not fall to the ground. He will finish what he started. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let our hearts, dear Church of God, in this time of our pilgrimage, rise up to worship him in adoration. For we know that the glory of the kingdom of Christ will be such a glory that that knowledge will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So let us worship him now, the church militant. And then Peter, when he says this, he does something a little bit different. Because this doxology is not like other doxologies. Did you notice it in the text? He says, to him be glory both now and forever. It sounds very common, but in the Greek it's very uncommon. In fact, it's found nowhere else in any of the doxologies. He says literally, both now and into the day of eternity. It is because Peter is taking the present struggles, the present existence, and saying, today, worship him. Today, all glory be to him, even though the scoffers mock him today. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? Because one day, then, as we enter into the eternal day, his glory will be heralded to all. You see, this is the glory of God that is from eternity, active in time. And will be manifested in the now of time and will last into the then of eternity, the day of forever. Now hard battles must be waged against sin. And now he is still worthy of our trust and our praise. Now, believers, you are mocked, you are scorned, you're going through hard times. Scoffers scoff, unbelievers live licentiously. And even today, do not compromise. Give the glory to Christ where the world does not give it. But also then, then in the day of eternity, all glory is ascribed to him. You see, here's the interesting thing. The glory that is worthy, Christ is worthy of today is equal with the glory he is worthy of then. He doesn't change. He is always glorious. And the scoffers wanted to prove that to see if he's worthy of it let us not tempt the lord but let us glorify the lord as we enter into the then where all things will be over that will be the day of eternity it is day because there is no night there there will be no more sin no more hurt no more sorrows we will forever rest in the light of the purity of jesus christ Is there any higher goal to live for than the glory of Jesus Christ? Is there any pursuit that can compete with that? Is Christ's glory not the most attractive thing for the church? What can hold a candle to the glory of God in Jesus Christ? What a glorious salvation that he bids sinners, people like you and me, to enter into that the glory. And as Peter opened the letter to say, Exceeding great and precious promises by which we are partakers of the divine nature. 
to enter into that character of God, to become more like him, to be conformed unto his image. What are you living for? Whose glory matters most to you? What or who do you want to know more about? Is it about cars, countries, culture, or Christ? Or Christ? The knowledge of him puts all of these pursuits into orbit. And without him at the center, and as the one who is worthy of glory, the rest will fling into error. It's interesting. Planets were called planets because the Greek word planetes means to err. Because planets didn't follow the normal course. And that's why they said errant. Well, nothing follows its normal course without the sun of righteousness at the center. Finally, Peter closes with one simple word. What is it? Amen. Amen. The word amen was transliterated directly from the Hebrew amen into the Greek of the New Testament, then into Latin, and then into English and many other languages. It is practically a universal word. What does amen really mean? The word is directly related to the Hebrew word to be firm. And God is called the Amen. Jesus is called the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. It means he is firm. He is faithful. Nothing what he says will ever shake. And so when the church says and cries out, all glory be to him, both now and into the day of eternity, Amen. It is echoing with confidence, with faithfulness, the surety of that God will accomplish these things. It is an expression of trust and confidence in God. How suitable to end this entire series with such confidence. Amen. Even so, Lord, let it be all to the glory of God. And the people of God then will echo that. And what do we say? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, truly you are the Amen. You will accomplish what you have set out to do. You are faithful. You are just. You are righteous. You are worthy of all glory. O Lord, may we serve you and worship you. And um, teach us, Lord, to, to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And to beware. In Jesus' name, amen.